If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 15. We'll be finishing up reading our study through the Lord's Prayer. We've been studying through the book of Matthew and making our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of, uh, one of Jesus' most famous sermons. And it really is a remarkable piece of teaching. I mean, Jesus covers every aspect of life. He says some challenging things. He says some surprising things. And right at the heart of this famous sermon is a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And that should alert us to, his, to its significance. Why is the Lord's Prayer at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, because more than anything, prayer reveals the integrity of our heart, the state of our heart, who we really are. So with that in mind, I want to read uh, the Lord's Prayer out for us, and we'll dive into studying this word. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray for our time in the Word. Our Father, we do pray that your Word would work powerfully in us, that you would draw out our faith, that you would lift up our eyes to behold your glory, that you would convict us, that you would sanctify us by your Word as you promise, and that in doing so you would cause us to rejoice more and more in the grace that you've shown us in your Son. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, prayer reveals the integrity of our heart. And integrity is really what the Sermon on the Mount centers around. You know, Jesus is giving this vision for the kingdom of heaven. And he said it's marked by what we've said, wholeness or integrity, meaning our inside and our outside match. The things we confess work themselves out in the things that we do. We're not hypocrites. There's a cohesion between our internal beliefs and our external actions. That's the direction of our life. Even if we don't do it perfectly, that is the direction of our life. And that's what marks people in the kingdom of God. And prayer at the heart is one of the greatest ways and one of the most central ways that we express that integrity of heart. Robert Murray McShane, he's a Scottish preacher, he said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. And Jesus, earlier in his Sermon on the Mount, talks about not practicing your righteousness before men. He talks about praying in secret before your Father. What's he getting at? He's saying that you can fool everybody else. You can fool your mom, your dad, your roommates, your friends, your spouse, your kid, everyone. You can fool everybody else, but you can't fool God. He knows your heart. And so, if that's the heart of the kingdom of God, it begins with that prayer in secret, coming before the Lord, being honest 
about who you are. Who you are before God in prayer reveals your deepest desires, your true allegiances, who you really hope in. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, if you don't understand this part, you're not going to get anything else that I'm saying. The Lord's Prayer is at the center of His sermon. And a lack of a prayer life is about more than just a lack of motivation, although that's certainly something we all deal with. But fundamentally, a lack of a prayer life comes from a lack of understanding the goodness of God, the fatherhood of God. And that's why the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's reminding us of who is this God that we're praying to. What's his character like? Who is he? And then from there, it points forward to his promises. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's pointing us forward to say, what has this God, hallowed in the heavens, promised to do? So the king and the kingdom frame our prayers, direct our prayers, guide us to their, to their rightful end. And that's where the soil of prayer is in understanding the king and his kingdom, the goodness of God as our holy and loving father and the promise of God of his kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as in heaven. And it shows us above all the Lord's prayer that God really does know what we need before we ask for it. He says, don't, don't pray like pagans, heaping up all these complicated phrases as if you're casting some kind of spell or incantation to get God to listen to you. He says, no, actually, the uniqueness about being a Christian is that God is your Father, and He already knows what you need before you ask. And so when He asks us to ask Him, He's teaching us the language of calling Him to do what He's already promised to do. He already knows, but He wants us to learn how to ask, and in doing so, grow our relationship with him, grow our knowledge of who he is. And when you look at the things that he lists in the Lord's Prayer, he really does know what bothers us. He knows what we're most anxious about and what we're most fearful of and what keeps us up at night. Daily bread, our provision, forgiving one another, our relationships, the dysfunction in our relationships, the hurt in our relationships. And then he prays for deliverance from evil. He knows the struggle internally against their own sin, the flesh and the devil. He knows all those things going on in our life. He really does know the stuff that makes up our lives. And so he calls us to pray those things to him. He knows. And most of the turmoil in our life comes from the fact that when we face these anxieties and fears in our life, we don't go to him. We do everything but go to him. And chaos erupts into our lives as a result. And he's calling us to say, those things that trouble you the most, that make up most of the anxieties and fears in your life, I want you to bring those to me. Because God is our loving Heavenly Father, we go to Him for help. It's as simple as that. He's the one we go to for help. We will look again at those three areas in which He calls us specifically to go to Him. Our provision, our relationships, and our trials and temptations. Let's look at that first one. Praying for provision. Jesus teaches us to ask God for our daily bread, for our daily provision. When you think about provision, it's directly connected to fatherhood. Fatherhood and provision go hand in hand. I mean, we know this because if a father fails to provide for his kids, we call him, you know, 
a deadbeat dad, or, you know, we look down on that, and, and rightfully so, because there's, there's this appropriate expectation for kids to expect their fathers to provide for them and to protect them. It's an honoring thing for a father to have that responsibility. How much more our Heavenly Father? He wants us to rely on Him. He wants us to come to Him for our daily needs. It glorifies Him when we depend upon Him. And Jesus later says in Matthew 7, 11, He says, look, there are some terrible fathers out there. Evil fathers still know how to take care of their own kids. They still give good gifts to their kids. How much more your righteous Heavenly Father? How much more is He going to give you good gifts? God's provision is essential to his fatherhood. And when Jesus is preaching this and he's talking to first century Jews, one of the things that they're going to think immediately when they hear daily bread and God's fatherhood is the, the Israel's exodus and the time in the, in the wilderness where God was caring for them. They're brought out of intense slavery and they're made God's people and they're wandering through the desert and God feeds them day by day by giving manna from heaven. Manna is basically sprouted flakes of bread. And that's how he provides for them. He clothes them. He feeds them. He protects them. He cares for them. And it's a daily reminder, day by day, God is the one who loves you. God is the one who cares for you. But what's interesting about this manna is it only lasts for that day. You can't stockpile it. In fact, if you tried to stockpile it, it would rot. It would melt. It would disappear. And so there's a lesson. Israel, not only are you dependent upon me, but you're dependent upon me in a particular way. You're going to receive grace. You're going to receive provision day by day as you need it. Every waking moment of your life, every passing day that you have is by my grace. So this bread language is a sign of God's provision. But it's not just a sign of God's present provision, but also his future provision. Dr. Matt Colvin, in his book on the Lord's Supper, it's it's called the Lost Supper. He does this fascinating study on this phrase in the Lord's Prayer, daily bread. And he says the word daily is actually not the common Greek word for daily. And he translates it, it's really it's a unique use of, the, of a different word that, that you could translate coming bread or tomorrow bread. Meaning there's not just a present provision, but a sense of a future, a looking forward onto the horizon into the future. During Jesus' day, there was a vision, a theological understanding of the Jewish teachers and rabbis that the manna not only represented provision, but also the promise of God's kingdom, the coming of the Messiah. So you can imagine what they thought when Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. He's pointing them beyond just physical provision to spiritual provision, beyond just the present day to the future, to the coming of the kingdom. That's why this daily bread prayer comes after him saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a prayer for God's kingdom day by day and God's will to be done day by day on earth as it is in heaven, to close the gap between that future reality and our present. Think about when we take the Lord's Supper. We take communion. It's not just present nourishment, but what are we saying? We're going to take this until the Lord comes. It's a foretaste of that future great feast that he will have with us. And the man is pointing forward to Christ and pointing forward to the provision of God's kingdom in the future as well. What does this tell us? Our pursuit shapes our understanding of provision. What we're going after shapes what we need day by day. Think about an athlete. 
What does an athlete's daily need? What, what kind of, how many calories do they need to eat each day? Well, it depends on what they're training for. Are they trying to gain weight, trying to lose weight? Are they trying to get faster, trying to get stronger? What sport are they playing? What's the timeline? All of those matter, and it affects what their daily provision is, and it's the same thing with the people of God. We have to understand what are we pursuing here so we know what kind of provision God is going to give. He doesn't promise us a carefree life. He promises suffering and difficulty. So we know that our daily prayers can't be, God, just make everything comfortable for me every day. But what is he saying? I'm going to give you the grace you need to face the troubles and trials you have as they come to you day by day. James 4.3 says that you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Then he says, you can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. In fact, if you try to be a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And that shapes your prayers. He says, God's not answering your prayers because you're selfish. You're not understanding in light of the king and his kingdom. You're not understanding in light of God's purposes in the world. So that frames and shapes our daily requests. That's what it means to pray the will of God. Sometimes you think, you know, got to pray God's will, if it be your will. And you think, okay, in my mind, I always think of like, God's got this paper behind his back of a prayer he wants to answer. You've got to guess what it is. You know, if you guess right, then the prayer happens. But that's not trying to pray his secret will hidden somewhere behind a cloud. No, praying the will of God is praying in accordance with God's character and his promises. It's praying scripture. It's seeing what does he, what is he like and what does he want to give and then asking for those things. That's praying the will of God. But this doesn't mean that we can only pray for spiritual things, like you you can only pray for missionaries or church things. But what he calls us as our Father is to say this. I mean, think about it. He's he's the great Heavenly Father who knows all of our needs. And he inclines his ear to us and says, what's bothering you? What are you worried about? What are the issues in your relationship that you can't that you can't fix? What's going on at work that's really difficult? What are you fearful of? What makes you angry? What is what's going on with you? And he invites you to say what you need, what kind of help you need. And this is something that God calls us to be specific in. Daily bread causes you to really think, okay, what, what do I actually need? We got to pray specifically if you want to receive and see specific answers. I think so many of the times we, we don't feel like God is working in our lives because we just forget the things we pray for, right? I mean, you just forget that you prayed for that provision, that financial provision. I think about these baptisms, and I'm like, oh, wait, we, we, we prayed for Caleb Schaefer. I forgot that we did that. You know, and, and all the kids that we saw getting baptized where it's like, man, the, the parents, the, the night after night prayers for their children to understand the gospel. And it happened. It happened. God heard it and he answered it. You know, every, we, we want a certain amount of kids ministry volunteers or a certain amount of power club people or people in Bible studies, all these things, and they just get answered over and over again. And we just forget. We just forget because we, f- we lose track or we're not remembering the specific prayers that we ask. And when we do ask specific prayers, we see God's specific care in the very details of our lives. So you pray specifically. 
But also asking for daily bread is, is praying continually. Right? It's, it's the idea that every day you're asking for these things. And sometimes you're asking for the same thing day by day. A lot of times we stop praying because we don't think God's hearing us because something didn't happen by Tuesday like we wanted it to happen. We have this deadline. But we fail to realize that in the Bible, so many people, they're marked by long suffering, by continual prayer, by waiting, and even the agony of waiting. And that tells us something about how God hears us. Because even the way that he makes us wait is part of him responding to us. It's part of him building in us long-suffering and endurance and godly character. Even the timing is intended by God for a particular purpose. And Jesus talks about a parable of a persistent widow, an old woman who keeps praying and praying and praying and asking for a judge to give her justice, and he finally gives it to her just because he's annoyed. And he says, well, God is never annoyed with you. How much more is he going to hear your persistent prayers? There's this idea not to lose heart, to keep praying, to keep asking, to almost have a ruggedness to your prayer because God is shaping you as you're waiting. And not only do you pray specifically but cont- and continually, but also as you're doing that, pay attention. Pray attentively because you'll start to notice other unrelated things popping up as you pray for something over time. Maybe, again, you have an issue at work with a coworker and you're praying and it's not getting better. And you keep praying and you're more and more frustrated and then you realize, you know what? I'm really impatient. And then you start to go, maybe I should, maybe I should pray about that. And as you pray about that, you go, that's really hard. And then you go, you know what? Not only am I impatient, maybe there's, there's a lot of unbelief. I'm kind of cynical. And you pray about that. And as you pray these threads, more and more things start to emerge. And you realize God's up to something more than just answering your prayer. He's shaping you and transforming you. And if you're attentive, you can realize your prayers start to change over time. You realize more and more things popping up into your life. It's kind of like if you go to a doctor and you're like, my knee hurts. And as he's checking you out and checking your vital signs on stuff, he realizes you also got like heart problems too right? You realize there's other things associated, and sometimes God does that through prayer. As we're praying, we realize there's other stuff going on that he reveals by having us pray continually and paying attention, and our prayers begin to change and evolve over time. So pay attention to how he answers you. Pay attention to his providence in your life, and pray accordingly, and shift your prayers as you see those things start to happen, because God is at work in all of those things. And if you pray for your daily bread, if you pray for his provision day by day, you start to become a humble, grateful person. It's a practice. You'll start to notice God's care for you, and that's going to change you. It's a great way to begin to see the grace of God and to become a more and more gracious person. So pray for your daily bread. Pray for your provision. But if praying for your provision transforms you into somebody who's grateful, that leads us to the next point about praying for your relationships. Praying and confessing and receiving God's forgiveness turns you into a forgiving person. There's a phrase I often hear, you know, found people, find people. Meaning if if you, you weren't a Christian, someone found you and shared the gospel with you, so you, out of the outflow of that, should share the gospel with others. Well, I think it equally applies here. Forgiven, forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people 
forgive people. And there's, a, there's that strange phrase where it's saying, okay, if, if you don't forgive, then God's not going to forgive you. And how does that work? Is that works righteousness? Are we saying that if you have to forgive someone and then God sees that and goes, that was a great job, you're saved, or something like that, some mechanistic thing. That's not what he's saying. He's contrasting or, or, or drawing out a, a vision of hypocrisy where he's saying, if you really understand the goodness of God and the grace of God, you're going to be a forgiving person. The fruit of your forgiveness is going to express itself in your graciousness and mercy toward others. You can't really understand what it means to forgive others if you don't grasp God's forgiveness of you. And if you are not forgiving toward others, you wonder if you really have grasped God's forgiveness of you. They're connected together. And forgiveness is a difficult concept for many of us. I think about the, the movie The Princess Bride where one of the guys is like, you keep using that word. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Right? He uses his word out of context. And I feel like that with forgiveness. It's like, we will say forgiveness, we'll talk about it all the time, but it's like, I don't know if you really know what that actually means. And Jesus is trying to frame forgiveness in light of the gospel. You have to understand the nature of God's forgiveness toward you in order to understand what kind of forgiveness you're called to extend to other people. Well, there's a couple things to understand about forgiveness. First, forgiveness requires repentance. Forgiveness requires repentance. There are two views on forgiveness. There's forgiveness is unilateral or bilateral. Okay, unilateral means that forgiveness does not need to be received in order to be effective. But that can't be true of God's forgiveness because if that were true, then it didn't matter if anyone repented or believed in Christ, everyone's forgiven. And that would be universalism, which the Bible rejects. You must repent and confess your sin for his forgiveness to be effective in your life. So God's forgiveness is bilateral. It's an offer of forgiveness, but for it to be effective, you must repent and receive it. This is biblical forgiveness. And in a fallen world, sometimes a person sins against us, they don't repent. And in that sense, we can't fully complete the transaction of forgiveness until there is repentance on their behalf. But we can still maintain a posture of forgiveness like God does. God offers us forgiveness without first seeing if we turn a new leaf or we start to repent. He comes to sinners with an offer of forgiveness, not because of anything in us, but because of his own goodness and grace. And so that's the posture we have. We should have a posture ready to forgive, hoping that they repent so that we can make that forgiveness effective to the person who has offended us. So forgiveness requires repentance. But second, forgiveness also tells the truth. Forgiveness tells the truth. What does it mean to confess your sins to God? Confessing, literally, it means speaking the same, saying the same words as God. So you don't just confess you know, sometimes they get a little heated. You confess malice and unrighteous anger. You don't just confess, you know, I'm sorry I offended that person, or I'm sorry you feel this terrible way. You, you, you confess your slander or your envy or your spite. It's not an affair. It's adultery. It's sexual immorality. Speaking the same words as God, agreeing with God's assessment 
of your sin. God never minimizes sin for forgiveness. In fact, that's the beauty of the gospel. He knows the absolute darkness of your sin, and that's the sin that he forgives. The real, actual sin, real evil in our hearts, that's what he forgives. But real forgiveness requires the truth. And some people can seem very forgiving when really they're very fearful. Someone who says, oh, it's fine, it's not a big deal. They're minimizing sin because they don't want to deal with the emotional strain of having to speak truthfully about sin. You really did sin against me. You really do need to repent. That really is sinful. Sin, so forgiveness never minimizes the truth. It tells the truth in order that there might be true forgiveness. And finally, forgiveness seeks reconciliation. Why does God forgive us of our sins? It's not so that we can just have a, a, a slate wiped clean and he can have nothing to do with us. But God forgives us, and what does he do? He reconciles us to himself. He adopts us as his own. He becomes our father. And so that is a model for our kind of forgiveness. You might be asking, well, what is this deal with confessing your sin? Is this kind of, you know, God loves me, he loves me not. I have to confess my sin, I didn't do it. If I get hit by a car and I didn't confess it, what's going to happen? Am I, you know, I going to go to heaven? That's not, again, he's not talking about a mechanistic thing. He's telling the Lord's prayer to disciples, people who follow him. This is a prayer for people who know God, who are in Christ. So what does it mean to confess your sins when you're in Christ? Well, it means what it meant to David, King David in Psalm 51. He's praying this prayer of confession after the biggest sin in his life, horrible sin, adultery, murder, you name it, all of it. And he prays to God. First, he recognizes his sin is primarily against God, not even against the people he offended. It's primarily against God. And he prays not for God to give him back his salvation, but to return to him the joy of his salvation. So when we confess our sins, we're not reclaiming our salvation, but we're repairing a disruption in our relationship. And in fact, David is able to pray to God because he trusts God. It actually takes faith to confess. It takes believing that God is your Father, He loves you, and He will show you mercy. That's what makes it safe for you to be honest about your sin, that promise of forgiveness. And that's what David believes, and that's what we ought to believe, keeping short accounts, confessing to God. It's a way, actually, of God assuring us of His love for us. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, 194, it says that daily confession is meant to fill us with peace and joy and to give us more assurance of his forgiveness. Think about how that works in real life. You're praying, you're confessing, you go, okay, God, you've promised to forgive me and cleanse me of unrighteousness. So day by day, I'm going to bring my real sins to you and experience over and over again your forgiveness. That strengthens your assurance. Think about your closest friends. Why do you trust them? Why do you, why do you know that they care about you? Why do you have such a deep bond with them? Because they've seen you through your worst junk, right? They, they know all your problems, all your flaws. They've dealt with you. They've even said hard things to you, and still they are faithful to you. They're good friends. They're loyal. They care about you. How much more your Heavenly Father over and over again showing you mercy and grace, and over time, that softens your heart and you become a person who extends grace to other people. 
the joy of your salvation. Maybe you have, are lacking that joy. Is there unconfessed sin? Are you hiding sin? It may be God's love to you that he is removing a sense of his closeness to you that you might speak up and say, Lord, I repent. I have been sinning. I need to see the glory of the gospel once more in my life. And he will graciously answer it. God calls us to do the same, to reconcile broken relationships. Not just to say, I'm no longer going to have hostile opinions toward this person, but to say, I'm going to seek, in as much as I can, restoration of the relationship. Sometimes you can't control the outcome of that. But still having that posture and that sense of, I want this relationship to be restored. I want to do whatever is in my power to make that happen. Why does he use the language of debts? Jesus says, forgive us our debts. He wants us to pray that. It's this idea of having a ledger. This person owes me this much money. They pay this. They relate here. All this stuff. And he says, take that running ledger of all the offenses and burn it. Burn it. If somebody confesses their sin, if they repent to you, burn the ledger. It's over. It's done. You don't bring it up. You don't hold it over their head. You don't lord it over them like a power play. It's gone. Doesn't mean your relationship will be the same, but it means that you are no longer holding them underneath the burden of that sin. Do you take joy when people who have sinned against you suffer? That's a ledger. We have to throw away that attitude and have a sense of wanting their good, praying for their repentance if they haven't repented. And if they have, burning the ledger and granting them true forgiveness. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, 31 to 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's what marks the church. Tenderheartedness, forgiveness, because God in Christ has forgiven you. How can you withhold forgiveness from others? Forgiven people, forgive people. Finally, Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why do we have to pray for God to, to, to not lead us into temptation? I mean, James 1.13 says that God never tempts anyone, and, and he can't be tempted by evil himself. So what exactly is the nature of this temptation? Well, the Greek word for temptation, parasmos, it can refer to three things. It's got a broad, a broad range of meaning. It can refer to enticement to sin, which is what we normally think of when it comes to forgiveness. But it can also refer to God testing us putting us through a trial. And it can also refer to us testing God, rebelling against God. Jonathan Pennington, in his book on the Sermon of the Mount, sees all three of these at play. And so he translates this passage, lead us not to test you, Lord, in the midst of our trials. That's what lead us not in temptation means. Lead us not to test you, Lord, in the midst of our trials. So you read in Deuteronomy 8.2, God tells Israel, that he led them through the wilderness in order to humble and test them to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So God sends Israel on, on this roundabout route. It's not the 
clearest path from point A to point B, this roundabout route to the promised land, because he says, I'm up to something. I'm training you. I'm exposing your sin. I'm seeing what's in your heart through this trial. But in Psalm 95, we read that Israel also put God to the test. They long for slavery in Egypt. They're like, we're tired of eating bread from the sky. We got steak back in Egypt. And they even blame God. They say, God, you led us into the wilderness to die. You brought us out here to kill us. In other words, what are they saying at the, at the heart of testing God? What are you saying? I don't think you're good. I don't think you're good. And it goes all the way back to the garden. Think about Eve and the serpent. The serpent doesn't go up to Eve and say, why don't you go and sin? Have you ever tried sin before? No, he says to her, isn't it odd that God doesn't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You know why he doesn't want to do that? He wants you to do that because he knows that you'll be like him. He's holding something good back from you, and you need to take it by force. You need to disobey God in order to find what you need. Because God's not really that good. That's the heart of that temptation. And whether it's in the garden, in the wilderness, or today, that's our temptation as well. And we have to recognize that there is a spiritual battle for our souls. We live in a a world of spiritual warfare. Satan is real, and he prowls around like a roaring lion. He seeks to devour our faith, to destroy our faith, to corrupt us. And that's why Jesus tells us to pray, deliver us from evil. Some translations say the evil one, but the idea remains the same. We live in the midst of a spiritual war every single day. And a prayer for deliverance assumes we're engaged in this battle, and primarily the battles within our own hearts, our own flesh, our own temptations. That's where we wage war. Pastor Jack Miller, he distinguishes between what he calls maintenance prayers and frontline prayers. Maintenance prayers are prayers that you pray, you know, the physical well-being of people, hope everything goes well, that kind of stuff. But he says frontline prayers are prayers that confess sin, seek humility, pursue the lost, and desire communion with God. Maintenance prayers, it's just upper middle class, suburban, comfortable prayers. That, that's, that's what he's saying. But, but the prayers of the church, empowered by the Spirit, engaged in this spiritual war, that's frontline prayer. That's the prayer that the church is called to engage in. And a prayer comprised mainly of maintenance prayers is a prayer that has ceased to be effective for God. But he says you need to pray those frontline prayers, confessing sin, seeking humility, pursuing the loss, and desiring to know God, to commune with God. That's why we want to gather on Sunday nights. We, we want to grow in frontline prayers. I mean, we, we can't afford to be prayerless. John Piper calls prayer a wartime walkie-talkie. I think that's a good way of putting it. We have many members in our church, they work at the Capitol. They work in politics. That's a very difficult place to be. They need prayer. They need frontline prayers. We have teachers. They need frontline prayers. We have Moms raising kids, discipling the kids, they need frontline prayers. We have missionaries, frontline prayers. We have ministries in our church. We have people 
and marriages that need frontline prayers. That wartime walkie-talkie. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, once he, he gave a little tour to these young ministry guys at his church in London, and they walked through this beautiful sanctuary, and he goes, do you want to know where the power for my ministry comes from? He takes them down to a basement, and there's a small room, no AC, I mean, it's just dingy, cramped, and there's a hundred people gathered in there praying. And he says, this is what I call the boiler room. Back then, everything was powered by steam. That was, he said, this is the engine that powers everything in our church. These people praying. And people would ask him, Spurgeon, what is the secret to your ministry? And he would say, my people pray. My people pray. That's the engine. That's the fuel. We can't afford to be prayerless. There was a statistic that came out that 11% of people who profess to be Christians are fully spiritually engaged. Coming to church every Sunday, reading the Bible day by day, praying multiple times a day, and being in community. Those, those kind of basic things in the Christian life, this is 11%. I mean, I don't know how we're going to survive. We need this because the battle is real, and many of you, you feel it. And we need to be praying for you, and we need to be praying for each other because there is a spiritual battle. If we're serious about the work of the kingdom, we must be serious about praying for this, praying that God would help us endure the test that we face and praying that he would deliver us from evil, deliver us from temptation, deliver us from our sin. So we pray for daily bread, both physical and spiritual. We pray and we confess our sins daily and in doing so we learn how to forgive others and then we pray for our protection in our trials and our deliverance from evil. That's the guide that the Lord's Prayer gives us, a pattern, a way of life, a way of thinking about ourselves and the world. And, you know, I'm I'm kind of a cynical person. I'm working on that. But prayer, sometimes it just feels so childish. Because this is the real world, right? I mean, decisions have to be made. There are deadlines. You got to do things. You got to fight for what you get in this life. It's harsh. And we don't have time to do this spiritual well-wishing. But that's just unbelief. Prayer is not childish. It's childlike. It's the most basic essence of our faith, that God is real, He is our Father, and He hears us, and He acts on our behalf. I mean, what do the kids sing in kids' ministry, right? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing... He cannot do. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? I'm not saying that if we gather to pray, revival is going to break out, or relationships are going to find healing, or our ministries will bear incredible fruit. I'm just saying it might happen. What if it did? What if it did? What if God is more willing to give than we are to ask? Because after all, there's nothing that he cannot do. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the prayer that you have given us.
we pray that you would help us learn how to pray. We pray for our daily bread. You know the needs of everybody in this room. You know exactly the temptations they're facing, the trial, the suffering they're enduring. We pray that you would give them the grace to endure, and not only to endure, but to, to flourish in the midst of that. We pray that you would help us to forgive those who have sinned against us. Help us have a posture of forgiveness. And help us see your grace toward our actual, real, specific sins in our life that we might grow in our assurance of your love. And we also pray, Lord, that you would lead us not into temptation, that you would help us in our trials and deliver us from evil. Whatever spiritual bondage is in this room, whatever attacks of Satan are coming after us, we pray that you would deliver us from the flesh, the world, and the devil. That you would renew us and cleanse us. And we can't do this without the power of your Spirit working in our life. So we pray that you would do this in our midst. And that as we see your prayers answered, we would glorify you with one voice, praising the work of your Son and praising your holy name. We pray this all in Jesus' name.